welcome to episode 7 of Dose Makes the Poison, the ToxCast. It's been a little over a month since the last episode for a multitude of reasons. I was on vacation for a while, and then I got sick, and then work stuff got in the way, and then I went to a comic convention and I lost my voice for a bit. It's still actually just coming back right now, so I'm sorry for the delay, but now I'm back. So, if this is your first ToxCast episode, thanks for giving the podcast a try. And if you're a returning listener, I'm happy you've tuned back in, so thank you as well. But first things first, uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it, uh, we're living in really unprecedented times. I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a public health expert by any means. I am a forensic toxicologist and chemist. But please, 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 please listen to the CDC. Practice social distancing as much as you can. The virus itself is a bit scary because we don't have the testing capabilities currently that we really should have. But as always, continue to wash your hands thoroughly with soap and water. Cover your mouth and nose when coughing and sneezing. And for the love of whatever deity you may choose, please do not hoard hand sanitizer and cleaning supplies. Let's look out for each other, practice common sense, take care of yourselves, and take care of anyone you see that needs help. So anyways, as you know, the ToxCast is a forensic toxicology and drug-themed podcast. And the opioids... Heroin, fentanyl, and fentanyl analogs are all over the news lately and have been for the last few years. So I, I kind of figured it was time to talk about these in a specific episode. And I mean, I've talked about these or some of these things before in previous episodes, but I wanted to do an opioid-centric podcast episode. So to begin with, let's break this down and talk about the opioids Heroin, fentanyl, and fentanyl analogs, or also known as fentalogs for short. So you're probably asking yourself, what are opioids? Opioids are substances that are either derived from the opium poppy or synthetically manufactured licitly, so pharmaceutically, or illicitly, illegally. Opioid substances interact with uh, three main receptors in the human body. They are the mu opioid receptors, the kappa opioid receptors, and the delta opioid receptors. Uh, interaction with the mu opioid receptors produce uh, central nervous system depression manifested via spinal analgesia, supraspinal analgesia, uh, respiratory depression, meiosis, euphoria, reduced gastrointestinal motility, hypothermia or low body temp, bradycardia, and then physical tolerance and dependence. Interaction with kappa opioid receptors produce spine analgesia, sedation, meiosis, diuresis, mild respiratory depression, and really a low addiction liability. But interaction with sigma opioid receptors mediates spinal analgesia, dysphoria, delusions, hallucinations, tachycardia, hypertension or high blood pressure, tachypnea, and mydriasis. So the pharmacological action at the receptors can either be 
agonist or antagonist. And opioids are classified into three groups. So you have your full agonists, you have your mixed agonist, antagonist, and then you have your full antagonists. So remember all the way back to episode two of this podcast, we discussed agonist versus antagonist. And that essentially is agonist substances bind to receptors and produce an effect. Antagonist substances bind to a receptor and essentially block the binding of other substances to that receptor. So then by definition, you a mixed agonist and antagonist would act as an agonist under certain conditions and it would behave as an antagonist under other conditions. So full agonist substances in the opioids family of drugs include, um, I would consider morphine, codeine, diacetylmorphine, which we'll talk about here is known as heroin, hydrocodone, otherwise known as Vicodin and Lortab, hydromorphone, dilaudid, oxycodone, oxycontin, Percocet, oxymorphone, Opana, the old school drug propoxyphene, which is pretty much off the market, is also known as Darvon and Darvacet, fentanyl, which we'll talk about here, trade names, sublimase, actique, duragesic, mepiridine, or demerol, uh, methadone, dolophene, and methadose. Uh, those are all full agonists in the opioid class of drugs. Mixed agonist and antagonist substances include uh, buprenorphine, so uh, the opioid that's in Suboxone or Subutex, uh, Diprenorphine, Nalbufine, otherwise known as Nubane, and Nolorphine. Um, full antagonist substances, so again, we talked about full agonists, and then mixed ant agonist antagonists, but the full antagonist substances in this class mainly are Naloxone, otherwise known as Narcan, which we talk about a lot, and then Naltrexone, also known as Vivitrol. So why are we talking about opioids? Why are these things important? Well, number one, they're important because they are medications. They are pharmaceutical medications used to treat people every day. But they are also, or at least some of them, are also illicit drugs. They are, some of them are illegal drugs and ultimately these opioids are driving the increases in drug overdoses in the United States. So according to the latest CDC data, the latest data is from 2017. As always, data tends to lag behind a year or two. But the latest data from the CDC says that in 2017, 70,237 people died from drug overdose in the United States. So that was all drug overdoses combined, 70,237. Of that 70,237, 47,600 cases involved opioids in some form. So that's 67.7% of all drug overdoses in the United States involved opioids in some form or fashion. That's two-thirds of all drug overdoses. And then ultimately, what is behind that two-thirds? It's primarily heroin, fentanyl, and fentanyl analogs, or fentalogs for short. So let's, let's talk about what heroin is. We'll talk about what fentanyl is. We'll talk about what fentalogs are. Um, but first, again, let's talk about heroin. Um, heroin 
is also known as diacetylmorphine. It was originally synthesized by C.R. Alder Wright in the 1870s, so it's an old drug. It has a molecular formula of C21H25NO5, so 21 carbons, 25 hydrogens, 1 nitrogen, and 5 oxygens. It has a molecular weight of 371.4 grams per mole. Um, Alder Wright was uh, researching compounds to find a non-addictive form of morphine by combining various acids with morphine. So in order to create diacetylmorphine, he added acetic anhydride to anhydrous morphine, which was from the opium poppy, and he boiled that concoction for several hours. Uh, really, a chemist at Bayer Laboratories named Heinrich Dresser took Alderite's formula and continued to ex experiment with it, and Bayer eventually marketed diacetylmorphine as an analgesic and an antitussive or cough medication, and they marketed it as a less addictive form or alternative to other opiates in the 1880s. Well, ultimately, diacetylmorphine was not seen as being less addictive. It was actually seen as being more addictive, and Bayer seized production of the pharmaceutical diacetylmorphine when its addictive potential was real realized. Uh, heroin is currently marketed as diamorphine in the United Kingdom, the UK, and it's actually used in the treatment of acute pain for th like things like physical trauma, heart attack, post-surgical procedures, and it's used in chronic pain. So in things like end-stage cancer and other terminal illnesses, it's used as a pharmaceutical in the United Kingdom. Diacetylmorphine is illegal. It was made illegal in the United States in 1924 via the Heroin Act, and it's considered right now to be a Schedule One controlled substance in the United States, and it's therefore illegal to manufacture, distribute, sell, possess, and use. Diacetylmorphine itself, it's a strong mu opioid receptor agonist. It's considered to be um, up to one to two, maybe one to five times more potent than morphine as an analgesic. It's rapidly metabolized in minutes to something called 6-acetylmorphine. And then that 6-acetylmorphine is metabolized into morphine in the human body. So in the forensic toxicology lab, we monitor 6-acetylmorphine and morphine in both blood and urine samples. So because of uh, 6-acetylmorphine's short half-life in the body, it's minutes half-life, um, it is only detectable in blood for a very, very short time, which is up to about two to three hours or so after heroin or diacetyl, uh, diacetylmorphine exposure. Um, it's detectable in urine for a bit longer, up to about 12 to 24 hours or so. Uh, morphine is detectable for up to about a day in blood and one to three days or so in urine. Um, I, we talk in ranges here because you can't pinpoint a specific time. So we're talking two to three hours after exposure, or 12 to 24 hours, one to three days. That's what you get in forensic toxicology. Uh, currently, illicit or street heroin is typically produced in, in countries such as Mexico, Colombia, Burma, Afghanistan. The illicit drug itself can take a few different forms depending on how it's processed. It can range from a very thick black tar, like tar heroin, to a brown or tan colored powder, or a white, refined white powder. 
Uh, common routes of administration for heroin or diacetylmorphine. You can inject your intravenously, so IV injection. Injection. You can inject it intramuscularly, so IM. You can inject it subcutaneously. You can inhale or smoke it. You can insufflate it or snort it. So those are the common routes of administration. And that's kind of a little bit about heroin in a nutshell. So we've talked about heroin. Now we got to talk about fentanyl. Fentanyl was um, originally synthesized by Paul Janssen in 1960. So it's a relatively new drug. It's only, I mean, when you're talking about it, it's only about 60 years old. Uh, Janssen and his colleagues were assaying mepiridine analogs. And we already talked about mepiridine being a uh, opioid as well. Mepiridine is known as by its trade name Demerol. So they were assaying mepiridine analogs for possible opioid receptor activity. The compound, fentanyl, has a molecular formula of C22H28N2O. And so that means 22 carbons, 28 hydrogens, 2 nitrogens, 1 oxygen. And it has a molecular weight of 336.4 grams per mole. Initially, fentanyl was marketed as sublimase, and it was used as a general anesthetic in the 1960s. It was used in the hospital. In the mid-1990s, fentanyl was introduced to the pharmaceutical market as a transdermal patch form, and it was marketed as duragesic. Then came along the Actique-branded Lollipop and the Fentora Buccal Tablet in the 2000s. But fentanyl is used in a hospital setting every single day. And historically, it's been used to treat breakthrough pain. It's used in pre-op procedures or or pre-procedures as an analgesic, as an anesthetic, and typically in combination with something like a benzodiazepine. Because it is medically used in the United States, it is considered to be a Schedule II controlled substance in the U.S., and it's available only via a physician's prescription. So fentanyl is a strong mu opioid receptor agonist, and it's considered to be 100 to 200 times more potent than morphine, and up to about 40 or so times more potent than heroin or diacetylmorphine as an analgesic. Typical adverse effects of fentanyl intoxication include respiratory depression, seizure, hypotension, low blood pressure, or coma. Uh, Fentanyl is metabolized um, into certain compounds. One is called desperpinyl fentanyl, otherwise known as 4-ANPP. It's metabolized to norfentanyl, hydroxyfentanyl, hydroxynorfentanyl as well. Uh, In a uh, forensic toxicology laboratory, we typically monitor only a few of those compounds. We typically monitor fentanyl, norfentanyl, and then possibly 4-ANPP in both blood and urine samples. So fentanyl metabolites are generally detectable in blood for up to approximately one day and in urine for up to one to three days or so. It's high, like I said before, it's, it's a range it's, and it's highly dependent as always as anything that's detectable by the dose of the drug consumed and then the dosing regimen, how often you take it. So adverse effects are highly dependent on the individual's use history with opioids and result possible resulting tolerance to those opioids. Um, It's also highly dependent on other co-ingested substances uh, or other depressants 
ingested alongside of fentanyl or other opioids? Was alcohol consumed? Were other benzodiazepines consumed? Were there other drugs consumed that were maybe not necessarily central nervous system oppressants, but maybe they make someone tired or sleepy? Something like diphenhydramine or Benadryl, chlorpheniramine, like antihistamines that would make you drowsy or tired, gabapentin, uh, other drugs like that that might be co-ingested with opioids. Uh, And then the underlying health states. So if someone already has a compromised cardiovascular system or a compromised respiratory system, I mean, ultimately, the, uh, the adverse effects are dependent on those underlying health states. If someone can't already breathe that well and you introduce a very potent opioid that induces central nervous system depression and respiratory depression, Uh, you are going to see an exaggerated effect in those individuals. So again, those adverse effects that I would always mention throughout this episode are highly dependent on tolerance as well as co-ingested substances and underlying health states. And that goes for any opioid, any depressant, whichever one you would talk about. Fentanyl and various analogs have appeared on the illicit drug market pretty quickly. I mean, you have a pharmaceutical drug and quite quickly, it makes its way to the black market or the drug market, um, the street drug market, uh, pretty quickly. So this happened the same thing with fentanyl and various analogs. These compounds first appeared on the illicit drug market in the United States in the 70s. Remember, fentanyl itself was originally synthesized and approved for use as a medication in the 60s. So in the next decade, it's now an illicit drug. So since the 70s, More than 20 non-pharmaceutical derivatives or analogs of fentanyl have been identified in evidence seized by the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA, and then other laboratories. Uh, These derivatives, as I've called them already, are called fentanyl analogs, or fentanyl logs for short. Uh, They they are non-pharmaceutical origin, but they exist to circumvent the Controlled Substances Act in the United States or any other country that has any sort of illegal drug act or anything like that. These drugs are meant to circumvent that Controlled Substance Act. So you are no longer possessing a controlled substance. It is a substance that is no longer controlled. So because both heroin and fentanyl and fentalogs are opioid receptor agonists, uh, their respective effects on the human body are similar. But many users report a less euphoric high and stronger sedative effects associated with fentanyl and their derivatives. One of the first fentalogs to appear on the black market in the 70s was something called alpha-methylfentanyl. The drug itself was marketed as China White, and the first deaths associated with the compound were located in California in 1979. So after a string of reported deaths, Alpha-methylfentanyl was scheduled by the U.S. federal government, and then, as always, several new compounds were found on the market, and these included things like parafluorofentanyl, alpha-methylacetylfentanyl, 3-methylfentanyl, beta-hydroxyfentanyl, beta-hydroxythiofentanyl, beta-hydroxy-3-methylfentanyl, all sorts of different chemicals started appearing on the market in the 70s after it was banned. So, it's very important to recognize that many of these fentanyl analogs or fentalogs 
are extremely potent substances. Some may even have uh, what we consider to be chemical warfare applications and weapons of mass destruction, whatever you want to call them. I There's a lot of hype there, I think. Uh, 3-methylfentanyl has been said to have been used as a chemical weapon called Colacol-1 and was de- supposedly delivered as an aerosol. It was also uh, incorrectly reported as being used in the 2002 Nord-Ost siege in Moscow, Russia. And that's when several dozen uh, armed Chechens took 850 hostages in a uh, theater in Moscow. Uh, the Chechens demanded the withdrawal of forces from Chechnya and an end to the Second Chechen War. Our authorities pumped an aerosolized version of fentanyl analogs into the theater's ventilation system and then proceeded to raid the building. Not sh- sure if that's a really good idea, if it even can actually happen. But all of the Chechen attackers were killed, and about 130 hostages died. All but one of the deaths were attributed to the effects of the gas. So, in, in the toxicological analysis of some of the hostages' specimens, so they they got a hold of a urine sample, and they got a hold of, uh, of uh, some clothing from a survivor. They did not find 3-methylfentanyl in any of these samples. But they did find the derivatives carfentanyl and remifentanyl in one of the hostages' urine samples and on the clothes of the other survivors. And these are important because remifentanyl is commonly used in a hospital setting now. Carfentanyl is not approved as a, um, as a human drug. It is a veterinary drug. It's a large animal tranquilizer is what it's used for, and it's typically used to immobilize things like elephants and rhinos and bears, moose, elk, yak, big animals. Again, it's a veterinary drug. And it was potentially used in this theater hostage siege, but ultimately, I mean, was it used, was it not used? It's hard to say. Was there another drug present that wasn't detected? Was there like some sort of inhalant, like a an isoflurane or sevoflurane present as well? It's hard to say. Uh, but ultimately, carfentanil went from being seen in that sort of setting to being a component of street heroin. And yes, that's right. Street heroin, carfentanil, a veterinary drug has shown up in street, fe- uh, street heroin. In 2016, in the United States, carfentanil actually exploded onto the street drug scene during that summer, uh, particularly in the Midwest, up to the Northeast, and then down to the Southeast. Uh, Carfentanil caused hundreds and thousands of deaths from the summer of 2016 to about the end or so of 2017. I mean, it's still out there right now. And in certain areas of the United States, it's still detected in heroin samples, but it's not as prevalent as it once was. Um, The only other thing I'm going to say about carfentanil, because it is a veterinary drug, it has been um, kind of portrayed in the media as a headline. And the headlines usually read something about it being about 10,000 times more potent than morphine as an analgesic. And that number, 10,000 times more potent number, actually comes from a single paper published by Janssen in 1976. Uh, I believe it was a tail-writhing assay study. So it was either in mice or rats. I don't recall which one right now. But the ED50, the effective dose 
for morphine in that study was determined to be 3.21, while the ED50 for carfentanil was determined to be 0.00032. So divide 3.21 by 0.00032, and you get a relative potency of 10,031. I mean, it's a lot of hand-waving. It's what I call math magics. But hey, it makes for sexy headlines. Headlines like elephant tranquilizer to blame for at least eight Ohio deaths. Or drug linked to Ohio overdoses can kill in doses smaller than a snowflake. Or elephant drug that's 10,000 times more potent than morphine kills in Ohio. Interestingly enough, in that same study, they actually showed the LD50, the lethal dose, um, that would kill 50% of the population, was estimated to be 3.05 milligrams for fentanyl, but it was estimated to be 3.39 milligrams for carfentanil, so not much of a difference, only a 0.34 milligram difference between the two. And again, though, take that with a grain of salt. It's a lot of mathematics, in my opinion. Other analogs, such as acrofentanil, butyrofentanil, furanyl fentanyl, methoxyacetyl fentanyl, cyclopropyl fentanyl have caused hundreds of deaths over the last few years in the United States. So when you actually look at the numbers from the DEA, um, over the last few years, the amount of heroin seen by the DEA has actually decreased. But that's because illicitly manufactured fentanyl in the United States has grown exponentially. It is a huge growth in the United States over the last several years. So if you look at the numbers from the DEA, in 2010, there were 579 detections of fentanyl in seized drug exhibits by the DEA. That number remained somewhat constant until 2013, where it essentially doubled. There were 945 detections of fentanyl by the DEA in 2013. In 2014, there were about five times as many. So in 2014, it, it exploded up to 4,642. 2015, it was 14,051. In 16, 34,199. In 17, 56,530 detections of fentanyl. And then the numbers that we have, the latest numbers that we have were in 2018, there were 83,765 detections of fentanyl in seized drug exhibits by the DEA. So when you look from 2010 to 2018, it went from 579 detections to 83,765 detections in that matter of, of in those matter of years. That's a 14,351% change in detections over those uh, from 2010 to 2018. And if you actually take it back further, if you look all the way back to the year 2000, 20 years ago from when this podcast is being recorded, it's 2020, you look all the way back to, 20, or to 2000, there were 23 reports of fentanyl which makes the 2000 to 2018 numbers really a 363,704% change. People, fentanyl invaded the heroin supply a while ago. So if you have heroin, there is a really good chance that it contains fentanyl or some other fentalog. Heroin 
is no longer heroin. It hasn't been for a few years. If you look at these numbers, you can really see that it hasn't been heroin for about five years or so. I mean, there is a humongous chance that your heroin would either contain partly fentanyl or fentalog, or it contains all fentanyl or fentalog. They're, they're, heroin is no longer heroin. This is not your father's heroin. This is not your grandfather's heroin. This is not your grandmother's heroin. This is not your mother's heroin. This is fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. So fentanyl analogs out there right now include 3-methylfentanyl. It never really went away. Acetylfentanyl. Carfentanyl is still out there. Cyclopropylfentanyl has mainly gone away, but it's still out there a little bit. Valerofentanyl as well. But overall, the well of fentalogs seems to have dried up. Uh, while they're still out there in the wild, the market has increasingly switched back to illicitly manufactured fentanyl. And as is all the time, it's a cat and mouse game. Drugs A and B are popular, they begin to cause deaths, the DEA jumps in and schedules them, the market switches to drugs C and D, those cause death, the DEA jumps in and schedules those, and then it goes so on and so forth and back and forth. It's a game of cat and mouse. In more recent news from the past few years, um, musical icons, rock legends, Prince and Tom Petty both died from illicitly manufactured fentanyl toxicity. Prince died of fentanyl toxicity alone, while Tom Petty had multiple substances found in his toxicology samples, which included fentanyl, acetylfentanyl, 4-AMPP, and those were all alongside the other opioid, oxycodone, and then the benzodiazepines, temazepam, and alprazolam. So that was just a bit about heroin, fentanyl, and fentanyl logs. More recently in the news, I mean, I, I'm going to talk about something that has been in the news in the past and it, it continues to be in the news. I've talked about this a bit in the past in other episodes, but I'm going to talk about this again. I'm going to address it again in this episode because it's the best place to do it since I'm talking about fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Passive exposure to fentanyl in the field. So when I say that, I'm talking about Police officers, emergency personnel, firefighters, EMTs, EMS, um, they encounter a pill or powder during a traffic stop. They encounter a powder or a syringe or a tablet while resuscitating a person who is unconscious or unresponsive after opioid use. Um, that is passive exposure to fentanyl in the field. There was an article reported just a few days ago on March 10th by uh, KTUL or KCBD. Uh, the title is Officer Collapses After Suspected Fentanyl Exposure. Now the story is, is that a traffic stop occurred. The driver was arrested on traffic violations. The passenger was arrested on drug charges. A law enforcement officer was packaging up evidence at the station. So they made their arrests. They took the evidence, they took it back to the station, a law enforcement officer was packaging that evidence at the station, and he noticed he was, and this is what I'm quoting, he was experiencing a possible exposure of fentanyl, end quote. He informed other officers nearby that he wasn't feeling well, he fell over, and then they administered Narcan to him. He was transported to the hospital, uh, he received several more dosages of Narcan along the way, 
Medics stated that he had come into contact with methamphetamine laced with fentanyl. There's actual video of this encounter as he was packing up the um, evidence. Since you can't see the video on this uh, podcast, I'm going to play the video audio now, and then I'll link to the video in the show notes. The power of even the smallest touch of fentanyl shown in this video. Watch as a Bartlesville police officer wearing protective gloves is packing up drug evidence believed to be laced with fentanyl when he slowly starts to collapse. Becoming ill, lightheaded, and actually basically passed out or or fell. Seconds later, a rush of officers coming to the rescue. I don't know what would have happened had they not acted so quickly. Sergeant Jim Waring says officers quickly gave him Narcan, which is believed to have saved his life. Police say this is the first time they've had to deal with something like this, where they had to give one of their own officers Narcan. It's really fortunate that, uh, one, we had this available to us, and two, that our officers... um, really adhere to the training and paid attention to the training. Another layer to the opioid epidemic and an eye-opening to what these men and women behind the badge have to deal with. Even though the officer may not be physically dealing with an individual, all the evidence and, and, and things that we handle on a day-to-day basis, you know, that can, that can harm you too. No way. That officer did not succumb to passive exposure to fentanyl by handling the evidence. My questions and and, and statements here. Was the evidence even positive for fentanyl? That's a huge assumption. Stories describe the case as a a traffic stop where the substance field tested positive for methamphetamine. I've I've seen no evidence that it was even tested in a lab. It was just field tested. So we had no evidence that that was fentanyl. We had no evidence that it was actually even methamphetamine. The officer himself was wearing latex gloves. So that's good. He was wearing proper PPE, personal protective equipment. You should be wearing latex gloves or nitrile gloves um, when uh, you are handling drug evidence. That is just good procedure. Protect yourself. The officer was handling the bag. He wasn't handling any substantial amount of powder. There was no powder flying around the room. There was nothing like that. He didn't get any powder on him. He didn't get anything like that. So he was just handling the bag with gloves on. On that note, even if he was handling the powder in his bare hands, he would have been okay. Um, the American College of Medical Toxicology, the American Academy, or the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, has actually issued a position paper on this topic that you can look up. I'll link to it as well in the show notes. They've done the math on it. They are smart individuals. They are groups of doctors, medical doctors that function as medical toxicologists and clinical toxicologists. They've done the math on this, folks. Uh, The math they did, they basically showed that if both palms of your hands, so you look at your hands, palms up, if both palms of your hands were covered with fentanyl patches, it would take about 14 minutes to receive 100 micrograms of fentanyl. And that's an extreme example, but it shows that even a high dose of fentanyl uh, prepared for the actual transdermal administration can't rapidly deliver a high dose through the skin. It takes 14 minutes for that fentanyl to be absorbed 
to 100 micrograms. That's skin patch absorption data, so it overestimates the potential exposure from a drug, which is actually in tablet or powder form, because that's how people are encountering these uh, substances in the field. It's powder or tablets, it's not skin patch. So fentanyl and fentanyl logs must have um, ultimately sufficient surface area and moisture to be efficiently absorbed through the body, through the skin. The fentanyl patch that is used as a medication, it utilizes a specific matrix that optimizes that delivery. That matrix took millions and millions of dollars to develop. It took years of pharmaceutical companies' time to develop. Uh, so it's a very special delivery system. Powders and tablets cannot be readily absorbed through the skin. Patch system is different, but powders and tablets on the skin cannot be readily absorbed. No matter who is telling you that, they cannot be readily absorbed. Listen to the American College of Medical Toxicologists and the American Academy of Clinical Toxicologists. Please listen to those experts. And as I was preparing for this episode, a second story actually popped up in my feed on the same day, March 10th. And this time it was about three Pensacola, Florida police officers who supposedly came into contact with drug evidence in the evidence lockup room. And one of them reported being lightheaded. Uh, the police department was actually put into lockdown mode. And one of the officers was transported to the hospital. Uh, the officer was observed and released from the hospital with no complications. Haven't seen any follow-up. But the officer did not experience fentanyl exposure from the field. Not fentanyl intoxication, not fentanyl exposure. It did not happen. And why? Because of this. There was an editorial published in the Journal of Medical Toxicology last month, February 2020. It was titled, Media Reports of Unintentional Opioid Exposure of Public Safety First Responders in North America. Full title, but very important title. Authors were Paul Herman, Daniel Brenner, Stuart Dandorf, Stephanie Kemp, Brianne Kroll, Joshua Trebach, Yu Hisang Hisu, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, and Andrew Stolbach. Um, all of those people are medical doctors, medical toxicologists from the Department of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland. Very esteemed group, all of them excellent people, all of them excellent medical toxicologists, medical doctors. Uh, the group itself in, in this editorial, they assessed an overall group of about 1,016 articles that were published in the media from beginning of 2012 to about March of 2018. And all of these articles um, had the subject matter of first responder opioid exposure. And out of that 1,016, only 214 of them actually described the exposure. And the reviewers did not find a single article, and yes, that means zero, that reported a plausible route of exposure, did not report clinical manifestations consistent with exposure. They didn't report laboratory testing that confirmed exposure. The authors go, to, go on to say that while in most cases, the emergency responders were experiencing real symptoms, they attributed them to opioid exposure. 
And then the writer of the article reported it as fact. And in reality, no one knows exactly why they felt ill or what caused those quote-unquote symptoms. But the symptoms reported, um, such as rapid heart rate, rash, lightheadedness, fast breathing, those are not consistent with opioid toxicity. Remember, opioids depress the central nervous system. They depress breathing. They slow down body processes. So opioid toxicity leads to hypotension, low blood pressure, apnea, the stopping of breathing, hypoxia, lack of oxygen. Furthermore, the the authors state that the media reports about these passive exposure cases may actually increase the likelihood of other people experiencing the same symptoms. That basically that the sensationalized reports sensitize people to develop that nocebo effect or basically when people have symptoms of illness caused by negative expectations following exposure. They think they're going to get sick, so they freak themselves out and they start feeling these symptoms, even though they're not exposed. And then the authors end the editorial with this. The greatest danger of first responder fear of exposure is delayed response to overdose victims. The authors are medical toxicologists again. They treat overdose victims every day. These people know better than anyone. And I'm going to quote them here. So when treating opioid overdose, every second matters. An unnecessary delay of rescue breathing and naloxone administration may be costly. And they're saying this is that by saying that you might be, or the first responder, or the police officer, or the firefighter, whoever it might be, if that person thinks they are going to be exposed to fentanyl from treating or resuscitating a person or encountering a tablet or a pill, then they're probably going to think twice about, do I really need to go over there and help that person? Should I wait for other people to show up? And these medical toxicologists are correct. Every second matters, and they, they're, this kind of thinking could potentially cause unnecessary delay in helping somebody breathe, administering Narcan, anything like that. So it's, it, it's a really important thing to think about. In the end, the American College of Medical Toxicologists and the American Academy of Clinical Toxicologists reached conclusions that hold up to scientific scrutiny. Unintentional exposure is unlikely because opioids are not well absorbed through the skin and they're unlikely to be present in the air. That's just what it is. Personal protective equipment such as nitrile gloves are sufficient. A mask, if you want to wear a mask, it's only needed in the unlikely circumstance that drugs are actually floating around in the air. And if you could see powder floating around in the air, okay, put a mask on. But if you can't, then mask is more than likely not needed. If you get any powder on the skin, you get powder on your skin, wash it with soap and water. Brush it off, go to a sink, run warm water, get some soap, lather up, wash it off, dry it off. That is all you need to do. Naloxone should be reserved for patients with symptoms of opioid poisoning. So that means respiratory depression. 
If they're not breathing, if they're unconscious, give the person naloxone. Otherwise, the person does not need naloxone. If you are awake, if you are breathing, you don't need naloxone. And that's the bottom line. These sorts of exposures are not legitimate. And that's the bottom line. Why? Because those Stone Cold said so. Thank you very much. All right, folks. I hope you learned just a little bit about heroin, fentanyl, and fentalogs. This was really just the tip of the iceberg here. Each of these substances could really have two to three hour long episode podcasts on each of these for really in-depth discussion. Uh, The important parts to remember here are that number one, fentanyl and associated analogs are more potent than heroin. Number two, if you think you have heroin, it's more than likely either part fentanyl or fentanyl, fentanyl analog or all fentanyl fentalog. Number three, unless there is a large amount of powder actually floating around in the air and you are actively inhaling that powder, which at that point, if you're actively inhaling that powder, it's not considered passive exposure anymore, then passive field exposure to fentanyl is not a real thing. Soap and water is proper decontamination. Always use proper personal protective equipment or PPE. Nitrile gloves especially. That's all. So the email for the show is dosemakesthepoisonpodcast at gmail.com. Look the show up on Facebook at Dose Makes the Poison Podcast and give it a like. On Twitter, find the show at ToxCast. If you can do so, make your way over to Apple Podcasts. Leave me a review. I, I'll take any reviews. So any review is much appreciated. So until next time, my friends, field exposure to fentanyl is not a real thing and never practice toxicology in a vacuum. Much love to all of you. Peace.